Welcome to Season 2, Episode 8 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is Max Easton. Max is a writer. His debut novel, Magpie Wing, is available now and is published by Giramondo. Welcome to the show, Max. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me on. Let's start with Magpie Wing. It's set in the late 90s, early 2000s in Sydney, and it revolves around the lives of Helen, her brother Waltz, and his best friend Duncan. And it traces their lives from playing rugby league as kids and then going into early adulthood and all the struggles they go through. What motivated you to write about this particular period? Um, I, that's a really hard question for me to answer because it kind of, it was all an accident in a way. Like I had started writing some short stories um, to kind of put somewhere. <laughs> I didn't know where they were supposed to go. Um, and that's just kind of what spewed out. The, the first things that I started writing were about the Crossroads Hotel, which was the, like the local pub I grew up across the road from the Hume, like across the Hume Highway on foot to sort of get there every week um and then it became about well if i'm going to write about the crossroads hotel then i should be writing about what people who go to the crossroads hotel are doing and that's put into junior football and um like myself and all my friends who grew up in liverpool we all played rugby league and that was a cultural focus um not a pastime so much it was just like the culture that was our glue um and that kind of because by the time it got to writing the book by the time Giramondo had had said hey you should turn this into a book and that's kind of like a, a like a weird story on its own um but I was I had moved away from Liverpool and I'd been living in Liverpool uh sorry Newtown for 10 years more or less Marrickville, Dulwich and surrounds moved overseas came back um and realized that telling these stories about these kids growing up in the western Sydney was kind of tying itself to something that had happened over the last 30 years without myself or like many people I know really realizing it um and that sort of um search for meaning and that um the splintering that they all sort of feel as they kind of like are searching for something um, as it comes into the 21st century and it comes into the 2010s um that started forming like a kind of accidental allegory <laughs> for the times and um, for where we've kind of ended up at so it ended up being um, it was really funny because the first review that came back um the editor nick tapper was like oh yeah you know he said it's a coming of age novel I was like oh it's not a coming of age novel it's like i didn't set out to write a coming of age novel because <laughs> uh, i haven't studied writing or anything and then um every review that came after that was coming of age novel coming of age novel and then i had to google it find out what it was and i was like oh yeah i've actually hit all the tropes <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but it, and, and it was it was meant to be in hindsight you know it, it is like it's a coming of age not just for the characters but for that generation that they're kind of um symbolic of or for it's um such an interesting novel because i don't think there's many novels written uh about western sydney in particular and i think the idea of western sydney is something that I'm fascinated by. Like I grew up in Southern Sydney, but uh, Western Sydney is something that is, it's a bit different. It's a bit out there. There's a lot of migration that happened in Western Sydney. There's a lot of uh, people who 
I think, feel a bit displaced in Sydney because Sydney is very Eastern-centric. Sydney is a city that I think we focus a lot on the inner city and the harbour and all of those, I guess, people who have money. And I think the West is a place where often people probably don't have as much and they and they feel like that they need to move in closer to, you know, to Marrickville or to Newtown and places like that. And I think that's really fascinating in your book where you uh, take your characters to those places and, you know, they are looking for something more. Yeah, I think so too. And I think it was an interesting time to grow up because, because a lot of that, um, well, that feeling as well, it's kind of um, this, two, you know, this, this tale of two cities type thing, which is a class thing in some ways and it's a geography thing in other ways and, and historically where people have been forced to move, whether by, you know, the availability of jobs, you know, factories opening up from, um, you know, as the inner city gets gentrified, whether that's Lidcombe in the 70s or if it's Campbelltown further on, um, or, you know, like an urban semi-rural centre sort of becoming a city of its own and sort of having this own influx of work and then immigration and um, migrant hostels in, in, in Villawood and um, Cabramatta and, and Liverpool and all those sorts of areas, let alone all the, like, housing commission areas that kind of litter that sort of development as well. And, and a lot of that sort of stuff fascinated me about writing the book. Um, because even when, you know, I wanted parts of the book to sort of represent a labour history and, like, a lot of the characters' um, loss of connection to any, like, political motives or being sort of, like, paralleled by the sort of the march of labour in, in, in the city. So when it comes to, like, uh, and actually a lot of this stuff was kind of removed from the book because it was um, the parents' stories or the grandparents' stories. But uh, one of the characters, the grandfather, is, um, you know, was a member of the BLF when that was going through green band, band movements in the city. And his big, like, sticking point was, like, why do we keep coming into the city to protest developments when there's developments happening everywhere? And there's, um, you know, housing commission flats are being knocked down in the inner city and being popped up like a big dangled carrot in Mount Druitt, <laughs> you know, or, or Lanier or Liverpool where these characters grew up. So, um mm. Yeah, there's, it's a really complex and um, sort of, you know, there's some writers who tell those stories really well. Luke Carmen has done a really good job of that. Peter Polides, Luna Kassab, um, among others that I can't think of, Michael Muhammad Ahmed. But, uh, yeah, I, I kind of wanted to try again, <laughs> I guess, and try and tell that sort of story. I think you've done a really good job because... That period, I think, is is so interesting. We're talking about the late 90s, early 2000s, especially, uh, where most of the action of the novel is set. And we've got the lead up to the Olympics in Sydney, which I think was fascinating because we had, um, there was a vibe about the city, but there was also all of this controversy. I think internally, there was a lot of talk about how much money was being spent on stadiums. Uh, oh. The state government, I think, removed all of the homeless people and sent them up north. Um, there was lots of stuff going on. We also had this John Howard era where we had this Tampa refugee crisis. We had a lot of really toxic politics at that time. And one of the things that I think importantly at this time as well happened for you and me 
and in this novel is the merger of two football teams. We had the West Tigers uh, emerging from the Balmain Tigers and the West Magpies. And the, I guess the title of your story uh, backs into that whole history. Do you want to talk a bit more about that? Yeah, yeah, sure. And um, so the title, The Magpie Wing, came, that was um, Nick Tapper's idea. I hadn't, you know, a couple of very bad titles. And he just kind of called me one day on a walk and I was just like, I was thinking like the magpie wing because it's sort of, you know, it's a wing of politics that's Western from the city. So much of this book is about cutting off like Western Sydney from the rest of the city and try to recenter everything. And, um, and also the West Magpies is a current theme. And that's, that's a wing of this NRL club, right? <laughs> and I was like, yes, <laughs> like that works. Let's do that. I don't have to think about a title anymore. But, um, but yeah, that merger, um, is so interesting symbolically, I guess, for that same thing we're talking about, which is um, the West Magpies from Campbelltown merge with the Balmain Tigers from Balmain, which, you know, I guess is was once a very rich working class suburb, is now um, a lot more cosmopolitan um, and developed. And Campbelltown is a lot more developed too, but it's a um, uh, sort of, it's kind of like a proving ground for, large franchise restaurants and um, large housing estates, sort of sprawling three-bedroom houses and um, that sort of thing. So this idea that in the late 90s, the force, like what was in the NRL, is this notion of rationalisation of the competition to make everything make sense and to have less Sydney teams was to, to bond this team from the inner city and the team from like the furthermost southwestern outpost and tell them that it's going to be a happy family. And, um, you know, it, it hasn't proven to be <laughs> 22 years later, but it's, um, I don't know, like it's, you know, it may not be good on field, but I, like, I think it's so narratively rich just to what, even just to like read Fox Sports News, like the shit that they come up with is, um, it's, it's just endless. It's just endless material. And, um, yeah, I don't know. It's so funny that, like, I know you're a Balmain Tigers supporter. I'm a West Magpie supporter. So, so it's always funny meeting someone from the other side who grew up, you know, wearing all orange and wearing all black and white and <laughs> get the paintbrush out. <laughs> One of the interesting things about this whole divide that you're speaking about, I think was made clear to me through sport and the fact that, uh, so in the rugby league, and obviously this is not going to work for our overseas listeners, but... Um, I'll try and explain it in a way that is understandable, but essentially the, there's a massive, massive rivalry between the, uh, a team called Manly, which are in the, I guess, uh, right on the ocean. It's uh, a eastern, I guess it's a northeastern suburbs uh, kind of place. And they were always known as the Silvertails. They were like this rich, rich club. And whenever they came up against the Magpies, who were a really poor club or a seemingly poor club representing a poor community, um, there would be fights, there would be, you know, brawls in the, in the, on the field and in the stadium. And it really identified this massive, like, West-East kind of divide within Sydney. And it's something that played out uh, in a lot of different ways, but I think that your novel kind of really reminded me of those things and having the the fibros as the magpies were called um, because, you know, of the, I guess, 
the material used in the housing out west and and the silver tails out east and i think that your novel really does represent that beautifully yeah, i'm glad i really wanted that to be a um uh kind of a backdrop i guess for um and, and you know the characters in the book treat it differently so it's like um the father sam who kind of grew up during that era is very firmly of that belief that that's this football team and their history kind of places him um in the world and his son kind of like buys into that his daughter doesn't give a shit about that and um you know their friends have take no mind of that kind of narrative um but i find that really interesting as a backdrop and, and even just things like like, like characters latching on to something um even as they learn that you know like you know maybe you know maybe it was just a game in a little bit which illuminated something really interesting but you know by the time say Walt's living in Marrickville and playing in punk bands and starting like a splinter communist party and saying that it's all the same thing which you know he reasons I'd say there is a way to like say that it is similar like this idea that he comes up with but he's so deluded um so it's yeah I found that sort of internal contradiction really interesting to play with um and, and to like let a character in a book go through that instead of myself going through that internally and um you know really having identity crisis about it i find helen is my favorite character in the book by a long way i think she's really the moral center of your book and her story i think is the is i think where your book is centered and um i i love her character she starts out as somebody who wants to play rugby league and she comes to this age where she's too old kind of to play and so you know they end up using her as a ref and um i think it it in a way it it breaks her off from this love of this sport and it and it puts her um i guess into a different kind of state where she's looking for something else and i really enjoy reading about her um could you tell us a bit more about her yeah yeah, Helen's everyone's favorite character, mm. uh, um, and mine too. And the most natural to write—that's—I um, didn't have to try at all when I was writing about Helen. Um, yeah, I think her, what she had to go through in that book, where it was um, playing junior, and a lot of that's true. Like I, when I, I played junior football growing up, and there would be one or two girls in the competition who would play with you until everyone turned 13 and then um it's uh men only and so the girls in the team had to go play for the open age <laughs> so if you were a 13 year old girl you could be playing against 35 year old women and um some would try and some would disappear from the sport for 10 years and that's changed now which is like really a really great development for kids growing up but if you were of that time um if you were helen of that time um you were lost to the sport and yeah, you would become, you you would referee a game, or you would you would run run the water, or you'd um, go seek something else. And I thought that was really when I realised that was who Helen was going to be. I just kind of opened so much stuff up for me because it's you know because also at that time it's the rise of the internet, and she's um tucked away in her bedroom just like searching for something and finding anything, and that's like a really good time for um you know the uh geocities website with whole documents available for you and 
um, you don't need to go to the library anymore. And that was exciting. Whereas now it's kind of, even now, like I'll go to research something and I'll buy a book and forget that I can just download the PDF. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so funny that evolution as well. But yeah, the way that, the way, the way that Helen is just like constantly seeking things out, it's constantly shut off from things. You know, she's kicked out of home when she falls pregnant and goes to live with her mum who, who left her dad and she has to go live in Wollongong and that unsettles her schooling and she's just working in the root curl outlet and then moving to Newtown, not realising that Newtown is Newtown in inverted commas and her, her mum's like repulsed by that idea and, you know, she starts picking up the idea of punk music and sort of like anarchist viewpoints, which she doesn't really pay much mind to, but she's really kind of thrill-seeking in this really um, innocent but all-knowing way. And, um, yeah, I, I, I love her as a character and um, I'll keep writing her as a character, I think, whether that's a wise thing to do or not. I can't, yeah, I think she's such, so rich. It's really interesting. and. Your, I guess your love of music comes out in this book. I feel like it almost needs a soundtrack of its own. Um, you also, you had a podcast, didn't you, uh, about music? Yeah, yeah. I did a um, podcast called Barely Human, which was a um, sort of documentary style underground music history, which um, it's not all underground music sort of starts with the fugs and crass. So it's the idea is that it's kind of like a, it began as a 50-year history that kind of oscillated between related ideas. So it's like the Fugs who are countercultural hippies, 60s, uh, New York sort of thing. And um, Crass who was sort of uh, anarchist punks in London. And then kind of felt like, well, I have to do the counterpoint to the Fugs, which is um, Randy Newman, who was, you know, the Toy Story guy who was a really subversive songwriter. Um, but was at one point considered a 68er, <laughs> you know, so this, it kind of went from there to contemporary um, punk bands. Um, so that, yeah, that kind of really fed a lot of the music stuff that's in the novel as well, obviously. And the story, in the storytelling approach, I think, um, pseudo-linear and, um, yeah, kind of swiveling around through time, mm. I guess. I love Randy Newman. I really do recommend people listen to that episode. It's, uh, I think, episode two in your, yeah. in your series. It's, uh, it's excellent. And uh, I, I don't know, I think um, hopefully Randy will have a listen to it as well. I know he's pretty active on these kind of things. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I wonder. I should try and send it to him. Yeah, definitely. Um, very interesting guy. But, uh, yeah, I think he did a great job with that episode. Thanks. <laughs> I want to mention your publisher briefly, Giramondo. I think they're doing some amazing work. They obviously publish all the Monet stuff and they're doing some other great things too. And your book, um, the cover design, the, the whole book, like the page stock, is just comes out beautifully. And I've been so gratified to see it in, and I walk into every bookshop I see. I've seen it everywhere. It's just, you know, it really is going around the country. And I think that um, they've done a great job with, production and distribution i'm so lucky and um uh, like on a number of levels like Iva and nick and alicia who all sort of worked on the book were so helpful and um never tried to really rein me back in in any real way just kind of like highlighted when you know something wasn't working or um 
that were also just like I don't think this book gets published anywhere else in Australia and that's you know in part because of the way it's written it's not because it's like some kind of radical experimental it's not it's not grimish you know like mm-hmm. it's not grimish which is like a wonderful book that just couldn't find a home because no one wanted to take a risk on it but um it's uh yeah I just I just can't and they were the only person I ever contacted and I got really lucky with that like I sent a um a five printed zine of short stories that I had and did a typewritten letter and half expect them not to reply and um that was enough um you know I was got you know was intrigued enough by that to like go yep here's a contract let's do it no matter what happens and um yeah every step of the way from talking with them about it um to uh like their curiosity about what I wanted to do about it too because you know there were like um you know like it was like early conversations like oh so what happens in the book I was like oh, I don't know I don't know yet it's like oh that's okay the draft's due in June <laughs> and then that was it it wasn't like you know like, it has to be about something you know, like I've got friends who've been pitching their books somewhere and it's you know they're trying to evolve the entire manuscript around their identity or something yeah um which is a shame because you know like the manuscript should be a manuscript and I've been very lucky to to have that experience with Giramondo um and on top of that like what you said about the um the paper stock and the the way it's been printed I thought I was going to be such a brat about cover design and the first cover design I sent through was was perfect it's just um it was everything about the book and nothing about the book um and it wasn't this like um then I thought I was gonna I didn't want to complain or make too many demands either and I was just like please don't make it like that plasticky um you know easily shipped material that kind of like stinks and I've got these like I've got these like elbow and neck problems and they're too heavy for me to hold and they're too big it's like almost an A4 piece of paper and it came back in this like this you know beautiful tactile paper and it was you know I could read my own book without you know having to stop for the pain (laughs) you know it was great um yeah yeah no I cannot thank Jeremondo enough for uh being the way they are and publishing the way they do and just not falling for any of the uh like trends or or the the shit like the you know the giant topography and the like blobby colorful plasticky imagery to like can look nice for you know amazon books or whatever yeah and and if you know if i lose if that book loses you know a hundred sales for them because it doesn't because it's so small that all the other books are dwarfing it on the shelf like i don't i don't care because the reading experience is so much better it's it just a production design i think is really important in books and i think the way they've done this really does value the product and it it doesn't look shit it doesn't look like it's in any way come out of some mass publishing house it looks like it's something that's really finely produced someone's actually had to think about it and uh yeah and i think it, it really it does help the reading experience and if you're reading a physical book i think that having a physical book that is lovely to hold and to look at makes a big difference well you'll feel it you know it's not a toy um you know you, you kind of have this attachment to it as a result you know it's like in all my opinions about publishing like i don't have a real relationship with the writing community or the publishing community i'm total um newcomer slash outsider to that world 
but um you know all my experiences in like DIY music and you know the trend of the like splattered color vinyl and <laughs> all that sort of thing it's it, it, sometimes it just like totally cheapens what you're listening to in the same way that the color splattered plastic book cover can cheapen what's inside it yeah completely agree what are you currently working on um i have started following up the magpie wing with something um i sort of like we had the book launch like where i met met you at the um pratt park bowling club and in the weeks leading up to that I was kind of, I was so nervous and I was like kind of trying to distract myself from it even happening. And um, I, there was this rental house in Holston Park, which was a like kind of, it had three different real estate signs posted to the front of it. It, it had been for least forever and it's near a nunnery and it's a this falling apart three bedroom house. And the backyard is the size of a football field, but it's flanked by three sets of apartments on each side looking into the background. And I sort of kind of raised the idea to my girlfriend. Like, do you want to have a look and like maybe you can move in because there's lots of space? And, um, you know, we kind of walked past it and it's uh, objectively a gross place to live when you're in your mid-30s. But um, like I set up an inspection anyway and um, went in and just, you know, all of a sudden this, it was the setting of a new book. And um at the book launch, I kind of talked to Ivor a bit. I was, I got myself way too drunk and like nervous drunk, like <laughs> dropping. I think like when I talked to you, I was like dropping beer over myself and that sort of thing. And uh, <laughs> uh, but I was talking to Ivor about it, and he was like, "Are you working on something?" I was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, I'm working on a new book. Like, uh, if you're interested, we should have a chat." And then, yeah, I, think I, I didn't realize that I actually was. <laughs> and, and since then, I've like I filled a whole notebook full of um stories and characters and um directions to go in and so uh, i'm enjoying that and and i actually you know because usually i like i'll pepper the year with like essays and stuff like that and i had all these essays i wanted to write and i think they're all just put on pause now because um yeah this you know the macbowing is my first piece of fiction and uh i really enjoy (laughs) writing it i enjoy writing and writing that way what's your process like do you do you write every day? Do you, uh, you know, do you set yourself goals? How do you do it? No, I just let, let it come when it comes. Um, I, whenever I've tried to sit myself down at the desk and write, I write nothing. I just stare at a cursor and look at the internet. So over the last couple of years, I've gotten better at, better at knowing when I'm actually going to do something and when I'm not. And but this one's totally different. I've never written like this before. It's all um, pen and paper. Um, it's seriously been a month and I've filled this notepad. Um, so that's interesting. And um, that means, you know, like I think this will be the process. It'll be all handwritten and then it'll, it'll be different in that um, I'm not going to turn it over on the computer until I have to, I don't think. Okay, interesting. So, but, but typically, you know, like I'm always reading and I try to read as much different things as I can um, and try to jot up ideas and then link them together and then fill a narrative around it, which is how the magpie thing sort of happened. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Max Easton. Do you need rapid antigen testing but can't find any in stock? 
Why not try the George Orwell Rat Test instead? Available from your local dystopia. We're back on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Max Easton. Let's move on to your gateway books. What were the books that opened the world of literature for you? Um, good question, because, you know, I probably grew up on you know, popular 90s young adult fiction, <laughs> you know, like Paul Jennings, Morris Police and that sort of stuff, mm. um, Roald Dahl and whatever. But, uh, and also a lot of rugby league autobiographies, you know, that like my dad would find at the op shop. He's like, you need to read the story of Peter Sterling or the story <laughs> of Steve Moore or this, you know. So that was kind of, and comic books and school curriculum stuff. And it probably wasn't until, I don't know if that was via school or via like internet curiosity, but it was like Philip K. Dick was a real beginning of me kind of breaking off from just like what was put in front of me. And that sort of started that kind of instinct. And then Kurt Vonnegut was the one that really um, sort of nailed me to the wall. And by the time I was in my late teens, I was just like, all I would read was everything that Kurt Vonnegut wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, and I loved it. And I loved it when it was kind of more speculative than fantastical and um, like Mother Night was a really big one for me. and. Um, I did a chemistry degree and a chemistry PhD and was a research chemist. And when I read Cat's Cradle, I read Cat's Cradle while I was studying crystallography. And, um, you know, the first part of that book is about, yeah, like very accurate science into a very fantastical event, uh, intersecting with, you know, religion, religious fantasies and an apocalypse. And, <laughs> and that was, yeah, incredible thing to read. And then, like, you know, I, I haven't read Kurt Vonnegut for a long time, but my fondest memories of him now are, um, uh, like, Breakfast of Champions and um, God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, where it's just kind of, you know, he's critiquing a lot of arts <laughs> and he's critiquing him, his own place in the world and he's um, recycling characters and he's, um, yeah, yeah. I think that kind of having a life of writing which like turns in on itself and sort of um, it, I don't think he's really acknowledged for breaking rules so much, but like, I can't think of a more rule breaking writer than this like fledgling sci-fi guy who became a mainstream canonical writer to the point of like, it's, you know, I almost didn't want to talk about him because I thought it would be like a passe or something, Yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I think he, he probably doesn't get, I think the Jews that he deserves sometimes because people concentrate on so few of his titles. But um, yeah, I think he's a fantastic writer. I, I was listening to an interview he did with Ramona Koval not long ago. And um, he's a fascinating guy. Um, just so interesting. Yeah, love his writing. Yeah, I, I never read it, but there's this biography about him and his brother because his brother invented cloud seeding. So he's um, real. And, and, you know, like when I was in like the research scientists, like, you know, I was pat- patented something which became a company and that sort of thing and um, threw that career away because I didn't agree with the ethics of it all, that sort of thing. So, yeah, I find the world he walked in sort of interesting. And, and that was another one too. It was like um, uh, the other, but my mum was a really big reader and I think, um, and still is, but, 
like always seemed to pick up these books, which were, um, you know, she didn't really give a shit, or she, and she doesn't really give a shit about, I don't know, like Catherine Rye or something, but she would kind of be like, oh, here's Slaughterhouse Five, which is a classic, but, you know, here's some other things of his. And um, by the time I was in my late teens, she gave me um, The World According to Garp for John Irving. And that's, you know, I read that a dozen times, like that killed my reading breadth <laughs> in my late teens and early 20s because that's all I read. Um, and then read everything that John Irving wrote and wrote, wrote everything that Kurt Vonnegut wrote and then stopped reading through my PhD and like I was a music journalist through that time as well and didn't break out of that to my late 20s. But, yeah, that somewhere between Kurt Vonnegut and John Irving were my gateway books. This is a long answer. It's <laughs> a good answer. I like it. Um, what pushed you into writing after that? I, I always wrote, um, you know, I... <laughs> thought I was writing a novel when I was 16 and then um uh which was very like my family my mum's side is Italian and uh I think I read it again later and it was just all stories about going to visit Nana and my Nana was uh schizophrenic and agoraphobic agoraphobic um and didn't speak English I never had a conversation with her but it was very that book wasn't you know the 16 year old was trying to write a YA, YA book and um, I think I was threw it in the bin by the time I was 18. And then I tried again and I tried writing. Like I'd moved to Newtown. I tried writing some share house type story. I threw that in the bin. And then, yeah, I don't know, maybe five or six years ago, I started writing fiction again. And because I was writing, you know, music reviews and music interviews and feature pieces for websites and magazines and starting work on, on that podcast series, like a documentary style stuff. And then, yeah, I realised I had this hitch to write fiction again. Um, kind of, actually, reading my friend Sean Prescott's book, The Town, came out. That must have been 2016, 2015, maybe. Um, and he, he, like, he edited me for his website, Crawlspace. Um, and that, that book's incredible. I think that's the best Australian book written in the last 10 years by, like, a long, long way. Nothing's made me feel the way that that book has. So I think that was a real thing too because I didn't know any writers. So knowing, like just seeing Sean write this incredible book and then see it actually get picked up and translated and um, shipped out everywhere and be, you know, um, yeah, you know, it's like anything. It's like once... Once you know someone's in a band, you realise you can be in a band too. Once you know mm. someone's a writer, you realise you can write too and so on and so forth. Let's move on to the books you're currently reading or you've recently enjoyed or you're looking forward to this year. So I just finished um, The Unseen by Nanny Bellastrini. Uh, it's sort of second in a trilogy. It's kind of this Italian radical writer. There's no punctuation. It's all lowercase and it's like lumped into paragraphs. And uh, it was part of this series that he did. Um, the first one's called We Want Everything. And that's about so the uh, fiat strikes in um, northern Italy. The main character is this, he's, his approach was to like sort of go through, interview everyone, and then turn that into one character and be kind of like the feeling of the time. So it's very, very loose and the, the very dirty kind of stories. And, um, you know, it's sort of difficult to read. It wasn't the most enjoyable read. But um, The Unseen was great. Uh, the, the Fiat Worker Strike sort of book is more about that 
aspect of this sort of movement which became autonomia in Italy, which was this um, just like absurd, <laughs> absurd sort of mixing of art and riots and, and prison riots and prison breakouts and um, just people kind of getting stuck in this like long 68er type thing up into the punk year, into, into the Italy's punk year. And um, that book, it, it, like it wasn't an easy read, but every time I picked it up, like I just, it was just like reading <laughs> ravings. It just like kept going and 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 going. And, going. and, I, and I, like I loved it. And it's just no bullshit. It's just like everything that like kind of makes me put a book down, it wasn't there, but everything, but then it made me put it down because it's all one sentence. So, <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. know, that was really fun. I really enjoyed reading that. Okay. I have to pick that up. That sounds really interesting. Yeah. And he's got a third one, which has never been translated. Um, Good Lady Desore. And, you know, it's been really interesting reading him because, like, I see so much of, like, my, my grandfather and some of the ways that he's, like, throwing himself around in the book. And, um, yeah, like, I'm going back to do Italian lessons. Uh, I'm trying to learn Italian again. And, um, yeah, I want to be able to read that third book in Italian. And, yeah, um, yeah try and, yeah, he, he's been a really interesting writer to read. I'm really glad I stumbled upon him. Speaking of that, I'm always curious to ask Australian writers about setting because I find that often Australia is the kind of place where some books work really well and some books don't. Would you set a book overseas? I'd rather set it in a place than this like trend in Australian publishing of um, setting it in a no place. Mm. Um, it kind of frustrates me. And I know that's a part of it to like anonymize. Yeah, yeah. To, to A, anonymize, B, I don't know, get sales in the other city of like 3 million that's in Australia um, mm. and see maybe pick up like an American edition or a UK edition or, or a translated edition and because um, you want your thing to be widely read. And I think that's, you know, in one way admirable but in another way really sad because um, it, it, it misses the truth of the story. And that's, again, like, like my book is so specific. Like I thought but the feedback I've been getting, it's like, you know, this guy from the UK who's a big rugby league fan was like, oh, I love the book. Um, I grew up in East Leeds and this is what it was like moving to Leeds. Mm-hmm. I was like, I didn't know there was any difference between that. And, <laughs> you know, like my old, I used to live in, I lived in Montreal for a year where I did my postdoc and um, I could set a book there, but think I could nail it very, I couldn't think I could quite do it. But um, my old roommate from Montreal read it and was like, no, this is like where we, because I lived with him in St. Henry, which is like the southwest of, Montreal so I don't know I'd like to be able to set something overseas and as a character in this next book I'm writing who's Italian part of the Italian rugby league world cup system who's moved over to Sydney to try and get um higher grade experience before the world cup in England and it would be nice to kind of try to move with him to Italy but I don't know that, like I don't think I can plan that either all right well what other books have you recently enjoyed or you're looking forward to um uh, well, actually, this year's a year where I'm kind of like I know things are coming and I'm looking forward to them. For the, for, I don't think I've really had that. I don't, I don't know why that is, but like Sean Prescott's got a second novel coming out also on Duramondo this year. So I'm really excited about that. I have no idea what it's about. Uh, Luke Carmen's got his first novel coming out, which I'm looking forward to. Another Western Sydney writer, his like collection of short stories was sort of. Um, 
something that I really enjoyed when it came out and sort of was it that was actually another thing that sort of made me realize I could write about Liverpool <laughs> you know because you know, every book is set not in Liverpool <laughs> mm-hmm. so that was a real um sort of circuit breaker and the, and there's um I don't know when these other books are coming but I just finished reading S.L. Lim's Revenge which was really good and I know they've got a third novel coming at some point or, or are working on a manuscript and I feel like that's going to really cut loose <laughs> in, in, in some way. I'm really looking forward to seeing what they do with that. Um, Bryony Doyle as well, who like uh, like launched the book at the launch. Um, she's working on another thing and I don't know what that is, but I really enjoyed her last two novels. So whatever that becomes is going to be really exciting. Hmm. Very interesting. Do, do you tend to read uh, Australian literature or overseas literature? Um, I sort of oscillate. Um, I kind of let, I try to keep, like, it's kind of hard because, like, writing this book, I didn't want to read any fiction while I wrote it um, because I was really worried about kind of being chameleon-ish and accidentally picking up things. So just, like, like when I write nonfiction, I tend to read fiction. When I write fiction, I tend to read nonfiction. But, um, yeah, I try to keep up with what's being written in the country um, if I can. And there's a lot of really good stuff being written. I really like Peter Politi's The Pillars recently. Yeah. Um, but as far as overseas stuff, like, I don't know, um, tend to let the op shops and the, um, <laughs> and the, and the bookstores, let, the secondhand bookstores tell me what to read. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, do you have a favourite bookshop in Sydney? Uh, the Dulwich Hill Vinnies is a... Not not to sound like a contrarian or anything, but uh, like they're someone in that neighbourhood donates some really good books, and there's always something solid in there. <laughs> it's in there. I really recommend it. And um, Repressed Records is um, the record store in King Street. The guy who stocks the books there has got a yeah really good eye for books and um, buys books. If you ever want to clear a shelf, he'll give you a decent price. <laughs> And um, prices everything really reasonably. Like you never grifted. Like I, like I historically, I used to always go to Gould's and um, Last Books down the end of South King Street. Um, it's like someone I was at uni, that sort of thing. And whatever the one was at the top of King Street, like more books or something. It's like yeah. a college now. Yeah, mm. they were all my favourites, but they're all gone now. So yeah, well Elizabeth is still there, but uh, they're so expensive. So we'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero and come back with Max's top ten. This episode is sponsored by The Magpie Wing by Max Easton. If you'd like a free copy, we have one available for a listener in Australia. DM me or email me and I will send you one out. We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time for Max's Top 10. The first uh, Kurt Vonnegut's Breakfast Champions is um is kind of not one to ten, but that was um that's not uh, linear. <laughs> I love it. That was yeah, that was one of my first books that I read that I was really um uh kind of got the idea of yeah literature in a way 
as something that wasn't completely frustrating and beyond me and, and talking to someone who wasn't me. Um, it, it just took the piss, but was also very genuine. Um, so I really loved that. And the other one around the same time is John Irving's 158 pound marriage. So all these books, I think that's, I don't think it's his best at all, but it's got this really nice pacing to it. And, um, you know, the story is all about, uh, you know, freestyle, Olympic style wrestling. Like I used to wrestle, wrestle when I was a teenager in the off season for rugby league seasons and sort of was training for the Commonwealth games and that sort of stuff, but moved into football and just reading the way that he wove wrestling into this kind of couple's story and this sort of spouse swapping um, all around like 60s, 70s America was really interesting to me. And I, from memory, that character's not a writer, which always bugged me about, you know, literature in general. Every second character is a writer, but um, actually, I think he might have been a historian or something. Anyway, I really enjoyed 158 Pound Marriage. These ones are kind of hard because there are a lot of writers whose books are maybe interchangeable for like the top spot for me. So, like Helen Garner's Monkey Grip um, was. Uh, such a great discovery, um, it's like a like a humanistic story, and but honouring other people's children was the first one I read, and that was uh, I can't really push myself into any other any other of her works because I think that's just the best one. It's yeah, I've got really fond memories of it. I haven't read it for maybe ten years, but yeah, really fond memories of honouring other people's children. The two novellas, the Maybe best book that I've ever read was, um, and I avoided it because it was a man booker winner, but uh, Paul Beatty's The Sellout. Um, and, and again, everything he's written, <laughs> The White Boy Shuffle and Slumberland, and they're just uh, really incredible parodies. Um, and, you know, like around the time that I found Paul Beatty's writing, I was writing about the country teasers, who was this like a, uh, English uh, lewd country band who are kind of like throw around slurs in this real satirical way and like uh, claim to be the tradition of like Swift and uh, Swift, Swiftian humour and that sort of stuff and really kind of grappling with that. And then Paul Beatty is this, um, you know, black American writing about, you know, deciding that it would be best if he segregated his town in LA and, it, um, you know, these like real life figures kind of appear and the sellout. It's the um, like a character from Little Rascal comes up to him and wants to be his slave and he permits it and that sort of stuff. And he's riding a horse around LA. It's just this unbelievable world that's kind of steeped in this deep criticism criticism via parody. And I, I really haven't read anything like it. I don't think. And the White Boy Shuffle as well by Paul Beatty is um. Yeah, just like this grapple with identity. It's uh, set in real, real world moments. So it's like, um, you know, the, the Rodney King, the the marches after the Rodney King murder. It's a um, Korean shopkeeper is firebombing her own shop in solidarity with Rodney King. <laughs> you know, as the riots like march through um, her shop, and it's just like I can't imagine anyone else writing that scene. Um, so yeah, Paul Beatty, everything is written. I guess is number four. <laughs> if that's, I'm sorry if I'm breaking your rules. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, number five, I think, is EL Doctor's Ragtime. And I only got put onto that by, uh, like Randy Newman did the score for the film adaptation, which I haven't seen, but apparently is rubbish. But that's another sort of really interesting straddling the edge of fiction type thing where, you know, Harry Houdini is a character who kind of like passes through and um, parliamentarians sort of pass through that. And um, yeah, I, like, again, I, that's something I haven't read for a long time, but um, one of those books where I remember them so fondly and images come flashing back to me, um, which I really love. There's so many forgettable books that I really enjoyed at the time. But they, like these are all ones that kind of really stuck with me, I guess. Um, what's that? Number six is Doris Lessing's The Good Terrorist. Um, that one is, I read it and put it down after, I don't know, three chapters the first time. And then I just happened to find another copy of The Upshot and started reading again. And that was really informative, I think, for writing The Magpie Wing in a way. Um, it was very close to the characters, but there was this um, world moving behind them just over their shoulders, which I really enjoyed. And, you know, everyone was fraught, everyone was contradicted. And um, this idea of, you know, this these squats in London. So it's also very historically interesting, just reading this history of, of squatting in a way and people, you know, going on a trip to the Soviet Union to report back to the comrades at the squat about um, where the movement's heading and, um, yeah, and then, you know, leading to ruin <laughs> was, um, yeah, <clears throat> I love that book. The next one is another maybe like three, three-pronged one. It's um, Mordecai Richler, who's a Montreal writer. Um, I'd never heard of him before I moved to, Mo to uh, Montreal. Um, then I just, I think I, there was this great gazebo being built in one of the main parks there, <clears throat> which was like, it was a restored gazebo, which was almost running like a million dollars over budget. And it was the Mordecai Richler Memorial gazebo sort of thing. And it was just a shitty little structure in a park. And yeah, someone made comments like, oh, that's just, uh, he would have loved that. And I went out and bought three of his books because <laughs> it was just like, this guy's got to be for me. <laughs> um, and yeah, and it's just this, that is like one of those like perfect answers to that. Um, like, would you, why, why you said, you know, why you should set your books in a place because all these books are set so intricately in, um, in Montreal and on like streets of Montreal and um, just like taking the piss out of, like sort of the Jewish experience in Montreal, in Quebecois Montreal too, with, with like this um, like hammering over the head of um, French has to be two font sizes larger than English on every signage across the city. And, um, you know, it's the first time I read this like line. It's like, he's like, oh, my friend published a book and um, it had the seal of mediocrity on the front funded by the Canadian government. <laughs> I just had all this sort of like... Uh, beautiful bitterness which was also taking aim at himself which you know obviously that's running theme of this interview of like the style of writing i really like um so barney's version is probably my favorite of his but i just finished apprenticeship of um dirty kravitz which is uh yeah that's its own thing that one is uh kathy acker's blood and guts in high school 
Um, that book scared the shit out of me in high school when I read it. Um, and like I sort of never came back to it. And then I read it again. And then I think I read it again after that. And um, just a great shotgun. <laughs> I aim at everything. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't even know how to describe that book. I don't have the language for it. But um, you could read it a dozen times and get something different every time. And actually, now I'm talking about it, I think I might start reading it again. But um, yeah, Kathyak is a like a like a hero, and, and like a hero to to characters in my book as well. And then the the last two are like really new experiences. But when I handed in the first draft of the Magpie Wing to Giramondo, um, Nick, you know, it wasn't very good. <laughs> and Nick was like, "This just reminded me a lot of David Cannon's This is a Memorial Device. You should get a copy of that." And I said, this is reminding me a lot of Frank Morehouse's The Electrical Experience. You should get a copy of that. And I, you know, sort of like left the office, you know, like head in my hands because I'd handed in such a bad draft and then read them and just got was so full charged with energy. And like your interview with David Keenan was so good. He's such a energetic writer. And again, it's like one of those writers that's just kind of like every time I put down a book because it's another like three pages of like florid writing you know technically brilliant writing and um this like slow 60s film style pacing it's like david keenan is like kicking your door down and just like throwing all these things in and, and like but like everything he throws in is a um it's a whole new experience and it's an emotion that you felt and it's an emotion that you've seen and it's an, you know and it's obviously about like like post-punk music in england and reflecting on that which you know like now i'm sort of like near my mid 30s i've played in all these punk bands and now there's no music anymore it was such good energy to read um to really enjoy that and um yeah to end on frank morehouse um yeah i can't believe i'd never heard of him before um and, and you know like i recommended him to me because um we're having this discussion it's like i you know it's like all right well, we're coming up to a difficult point it's like are you writing a short story collection you know, it's kind of feels more like an episodic, episodic novel and actually it's kind of like Morehouse's discontinuous narrative thing, which, you know, he was working on for his first couple of books, um, which now get filed in the short story collection section, which I find really interesting. Um, yeah, but that, that mode of storytelling and, like, weaving things in and um, I find it to be such a thrill when he's, like, he's just kind of giving you this, like, gloss over of a character um to tell some other character's story two chapters later you zone in back in on that character and yeah i don't know i'm just rambling now but yeah i think the electrical experience is great yeah no i think frank morehouse is somebody who um he's kind of disappeared a bit i think he's still around i'm pretty sure isn't he but um, well, yeah yeah he's you know he's still alive um, yeah. You know, he wrote a, I think he wrote a, a, another novel a few years ago. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I feel like he's a little bit forgotten in Australian lit and especially for people overseas. I don't think he's um, well known, but, yeah, very interesting. What a great list. Thanks, thanks for the opportunity, Ben, to, yeah. <laughs> to list some random books. Yeah. Important books for me, I guess. <laughs> That's funny yeah. when you said... Uh, this memorial device because I think there there are some similarities between your book and, and that book, the episodic nature, but also the the focus on music and and 
how that kind of embeds itself into your story. I think it has a few similarities with David Keenan's book. Yeah, and I was really excited to read it at that time because I was the first when I started writing. I was kind of like, I need to take all this rugby league stuff out because no one will give a shit. Mm. And then when I when I did, you know, they came back. I was like, why did you take all that out? And yeah. I was like, well, I guess I've got to take all this music stuff out because no one's going to give a shit about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, read this. <laughs> yeah, here's a demonstration of you can write about whatever you want to write about if you do it with. Yeah, with that like the obsession that David Keenan has in that book is incredible. Yeah. Well, we should wrap it up, but before we do, can you tell everybody where we can buy the Magpie Wing and where we can find you online? Yeah, I think uh, probably the best place to buy it is direct from the publisher at the Jumundo Publishing website. Um, it does seem to be in most Australian bookshops. Shipping overseas is really expensive. The the ebook's probably the best way to get it if you don't want to pay forty dollars in postage. And um, <laughs> Yeah, I got, like I have a Twitter account that I use very sparingly, and that's just at Max Easton underscore underscore. Um, and email's good too. I really do recommend people go out and buy the Magpie Wing because I think it's, uh, I feel like it's a bit unique in the Australian literature landscape at the moment because I don't think people are writing the same way as you. I don't think they're covering the same content as you. And I think you've done an amazing job. And I think uh, the book reads beautifully. I think... As a product, it's it's great because it really, as we talked about before, the production values are high and Jumanda have done a great job putting it together and uh, I really do highly recommend it. So thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for running this podcast. I'm a big, big fan. <laughs> thank you very much for having me. Thanks once again to Max Easton. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BeyondZeroPod, and you can email us at beyondthezeropod at gmail.com. We'll be back for your next episode very soon.